Well, thank you very much, worship team, uh, for leading us so well as you do every Sunday. Um, it is really good to see you guys this morning, and I do want to thank you for being with us this morning. And if you're listening online later, thank you for doing that later. I really hope, as in every Sunday that we get together, that you're encouraged and you're refreshed by seeing your faith in a new way and seeing God in a new way. You found us in uh, part two of a seven-part series that we're calling Meaningful. Now, if you're here and you're actually seeing what's up on the screen behind me, you may wonder what exactly are we calling this series? Is it meaning flesh? Is it meaning lawful? You know, what is that? And uh, we're in a series that is actually a study on the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, which you may not know anything about, I'm going to tell you this. In the first chapter, several times, in fact, the author begins by saying, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's about as depressing a book as you can get if you take it at face value. However, I think that there is something in this book that changes everything about how we see the world and how we see our God. If you were here two weeks ago, you got to, uh, to see what that was, that idea, and that is simply that the resurrection changes everything about everything, that one big idea changes everything, and one big idea in the book of Ecclesiastes changes everything about what we at first think this book is about. Now, I also had a little bit of a, um, depending on who you are, a little bit of a controversial view on the book of Ecclesiastes. As I acknowledge in week one, I may be wrong about this, but I believe that Solomon was not the author of Ecclesiastes. Now, I'll tell you why that's important. If Solomon wrote the book, then we read it one way, but if he didn't write it, then we're going to read it another way. And how we read the book, and how I read the book in particular, impacts how I will teach the book to you. That will impact what you hear, and maybe, even maybe, it'll impact what decisions you make with your life. So tracing that all the way back to who actually wrote this book. Two weeks ago, I said that I believe that there are two authors to this book. One is um, what we call a frame author who wrote in chapter 1 and then at the very end of the book in chapter 12 as well, and that he is framing up the writings of a wise teacher. The name of that teacher in Hebrew is Kohale. I will simply, for the sake of ease, probably call him Q from here on out. Q is, I believe, a wise sage, a teacher, someone who is indeed very wise, but who was functioning and presenting himself as if he was Solomon for his people to read. Similarly, as you might go to Gettysburg and hear someone pretend to be Abraham Lincoln so that you get in the mood of what Abraham Lincoln might feel like or teach, as is the case, I believe, for the book of Ecclesiastes, where Q is putting himself in the character of Solomon so that we can get in the mood of what it would be like for someone to, to teach with the wisdom that Solomon has. And so here's how I view Q's teaching, which is the bulk of the book of Ecclesiastes. Similarly to how I would view the book of Job and Job's friend's advice to Job. It's in the Bible. There's some of that that's good. And some of it we have to filter and say, does this fit theologically with what we know is true? And most of us would say that Job's friends who gave him advice, bad advice, in the middle of his struggle, their advice is not advice that you put on a calendar on your fridge or on your, um, you know, in any place that's visible because you don't believe that his advice that, they, that he received from his friends was actually worthwhile, but it's still in the Bible. The book of Ecclesiastes, I believe, in much the same way can be seen as similar to that, that Q's teaching in the middle of the book, there's some that's very good and helpful and wise, but some of it that is not filtered through the grid of the resurrection is not, I believe, consistent, is not um, thorough, is incomplete. In other words, when the ceiling of your hope is death, life becomes meaningless. 
what's the point? If we all die and that's the end of it, what's the point? And that's Q's highest hope is that we all are going to die and so you may as well just enjoy life. And what he says is take pleasure in the little things that you have now because it's like taking an Advil for a headache. You get an hour of relief, but no, it's coming back when you're, when you're done. And that's the end of his hope. So this is framing up again Ecclesiastes. Now here's what I said two weeks ago, that in light of this, there are several things, several topics that Q will write about throughout the book. And one of the main things that he's interested in is how do you gain or how do you get ahead in life? You know, his struggle is, how do I gain? I want to get ahead. I want to move forward. But death is like the end of it. And it's like it just kills everything. I don't know what to do. So here's, here's what he, he writes about several things. And we're going to focus on six of those in the, next, in the coming, um, coming weeks. So today, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to talk about the top topic right here. So that, that is the resurrection, changes everything about what is wise versus unwise, and that's what this morning is about. Okay, that's number one. Next week, we're going to talk about how we see our work related to this whole idea of the resurrection, things becoming meaningful. Then we're going to talk about money and wealth, and then oppression and injustice, and then our reputations, and then about knowing God's will. And this is our outline for, for the, the topical study, if you will, of the book of Ecclesiastes. So this morning, we're going to talk about wise versus unwise and how I understand that. So to get that framed up, I want to, uh, to let you know, many of you know about a guy named uh, Jerome Bettis. How many of you have heard of Jerome Bettis? All right, Jerome the Bus Bettis is his nickname. He uh, was a former uh, running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And just this week in, I think, Pro Football Talk, he shared a, they shared part of an interview that this uh, very good, strong um, mule of a man had with, uh, w- with this syndicated sports talk show host. And here's what the, the headline reads. It says, Jerome Bettis. And the headline is this, I sold crack, shot at people growing up in Detroit. That's why I didn't play for the Eagles. I just want to tell you that. Okay, just kidding. Here's, here's what it says. In an interview with syndicated sports talk host Graham Bensinger, Bettis admitted selling crack and shooting at people when he was growing up in the Motor City. Bettis was asked about selling crack with his brother and admitted it was considered a financial necessity. The mindset was, Bettis is now talking, We're in the hood. Mom and dad, they're working their butts off. There's no money around. We need to make some money, he said, via James Yonke of the Detroit Free Press. And so we said, you know what? Let's give it a shot. And it was one of those moments that you regret, but at the moment, that was the only thing that was really available to us. They go on to write that that career path obviously comes with a certain set of dangers, and the legendary running back was asked if he ever shot at anyone. Yeah, that was part of growing up in our environment, in our neighborhood. That wasn't out of the realm of normal, he said. When you go back, it's nothing that I ever wanted to glorify because I know in retrospect that it was awful. Here you are in a position to take someone's life, and that's never a good thing. And so I look back on it now, I always see the wrongs that are in it and never want to bring light to it in that respect, that, as if it was a good thing. It was the worst thing that I could have ever done. It was a bad decision, but it was a decision that I made and that I lived with at that moment. Regret. Regret is this reality that is a teacher to us that says, even in our best moments, when we think we're making the wisest decision, we might be wrong. If you've ever experienced regret, here's what regret teaches you. That in the moment when you're trying to make a wise decision, it's possible that even if you've thought about it all, that you actually will regret the decision that right now, today, you think is wise. Isn't that sobering? 
That after all the things that you consider, after all the ways that you could possibly respond, after all the things that you could do, you decide I'm going to go down this path. It is possible that it's the wrong path. It is possible that you will choose the wrong thing and you will have to live with regret. Regret is that reality that Jerome Bettis is now living with. In that moment, he's like, you know what, this seems like the wise thing to do. And we are sitting there listening to that and we're thinking, how foolish, <laughs> right? How in the world could you ever think that, that selling crack and shooting at people is wise? But I'm telling you, if you were to talk to him in that young age, he would say, this is what I have to do, and I'm going to make the decision to do it. We look at it now, and we're like, are you kidding me? That is so foolish. You're throwing away a future. Look at the harm that you could impact, inflict on people. And here's the tough reality that we live with as humans, that each one of us has experienced the reality of regret, haven't we? That each one of us has looked back and we've asked questions like this, why did I ever date that person? What was I thinking? Why did I, why did I buy that then in my life and finance that big thing? I didn't even need it. I just, just wanted it. And if I wouldn't have done that, I would have had more money now to do this. And why did I not do this sooner, right? I'm having such a good experience of this. Why did I wait so long to whatever, to ask her out, to ask, you know, whatever, to go in this direction? Why did I wait so long? Why did I hold on to bitterness for so long in this relationship I have with somebody? It's been years and years and years, and now our relationship is so distant, and I wish it was different. You know what? I regret the way I handled that interpersonal conflict. Or if you're a leader, a business leader, even a church leader, looking back on tough decisions, saying, man, why did I initiate the process? And why did I lead into that process the way that I did? I thought it was wise, but it wasn't. Turns out to be the wrong thing. Have you ever been there? Okay, this is the human condition that I think we share. And we all want to make decisions about what is wise and how to get ahead. None of us will ever ask the question, if you ask this, would you like your future to be better than your past? No one will ever say, yeah, no. I'd rather have my past be better than my future. Therefore, if you want, like all of us, our future to be better than our past, you want to know how to make wise decisions. Because that's the way that you build a future that's better than your past. So this morning, as we look at this book of Ecclesiastes, there is some teaching in here related to wisdom that I really want to bring out to you because there's one big idea that to me is so important for you, so important for me to get my mind around, to get my heart around, related to making wise decisions. Now, I want to talk about wisdom for a moment and try to define or describe that at least, because it's very important. Wisdom, I think you know, is different than knowledge. Um, knowledge is simply knowing what to do. Wisdom is applying that knowledge well. For example, imagine a scenario where a, a toddler uh, in your home or where you're living or what have you, grabs a, a butter knife uh, that is sitting out as someone is preparing a meal. And in their interest of all things that are fun, the, the little toddler grabs a knife and begins to play with it. Now, the toddler's older sibling, who's, let's say, two years older, maybe four years old at this point, knows that's bad. And runs over, yells, knocks the kid down, grabs a knife and screams at him for getting the knife. Meanwhile, the kid is crying, the toddler's like, what happened, what happened? The knowledge was right, right? 
back the tape up. Let's say a parent sees the same thing unfold, and a parent sees a toddler grab a butter knife. The parent will move over quickly to that situation, maybe grab a spoon, switch it out, and encourage the kid to keep playing. The knowledge isn't the issue, but the wisdom of how to apply that knowledge is what we're talking about. One is wise and one is not wise. And wisdom is that correct application of knowledge to the situation, one that comes with maturity and experience and comes with learning from our mistakes. And so wisdom is essentially the art of successful living. If you want to look at it from a non-Christian perspective, it's how do I live successfully and the art of that. From a Christian perspective, here's what I believe. If you want to think about wisdom, think about it this way. Wisdom is successfully walking with God. Wisdom is that art, if you will, of walking with God on a regular basis and applying the knowledge of his will into your life on a regular basis. It's that close proximity with God in terms of understanding his will and his word and applying that wisdom, not just the knowledge, but applying that into the day-to-day life. It is not, let me be clear on this, wisdom is not memorizing all the Bible verses. Okay? Wisdom is uh, not, this is important too, not being the smartest person in the room. You don't need an advanced degree to be wise. You don't need any degree to be wise. Wisdom is successfully walking with God on a regular basis. Contrast that with foolishness, because sometimes that helps to think and understand what, what I mean by wisdom. Foolishness is essentially leading into life as if my priorities are the best. Foolishness is saying this, and look at it, think about it this way. Foolishness is living like I'm the wisest one around. Foolishness is saying, I can see clearly. I, I, I know what to do. My decisions are best. I, I know how to handle the money. I got, I got the relationship thing. I can figure it out. I can, I can Jerome Bettis it. I'm looking around. I'm seeing my options. I'm saying the best thing is to sell crack and shoot at people. And foolishness is saying, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the wisest person around. And the Christian knows If I'm going to be someone who follows the God of the Bible, I'm going to have to regularly and intentionally, even when it is very difficult, even when God's desires, and here's the hard part, even when God's desires go against mine, I'm going to walk with him and putting his priorities above mine. Here's wisdom. Okay, now, with that being said, I want to take you to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're not there, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one near you in the pew around you. Ecclesiastes is just after the the big book of Psalms. If you turn to the middle of your Bible, you'll find Psalms and then Proverbs, and then you'll find Ecclesiastes after that. And I want to take you there um, to chapter 2 as as, um, our teacher, Q, is now talking about wisdom. Uh, He has a lot of things to say about wisdom. Several, several, several places in the book he'll write about wisdom, and I'm just going to take you to to really two of them here this morning uh, to try to give you a picture of what's going on. All right? So he's writing in chapter 2, verse 12, and he says here, Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom, and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, while the fool walks in the darkness. Isn't that an interesting phrase? 
I'm going to pause it right there, verse 14. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. Imagine someone with no eyes. This is what, what Q is writing about this person. If we're, to, if we're to pause Q's teaching here, basically he's saying wisdom is better than foolishness. Isn't that profound? I was waiting for some kind of oohs and ahs, but isn't that profound? All right, I, think, I think a two-year-old, maybe a three-year-old, could probably tell you that, right? Is it better to be smart or not smart? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the issue. And here's what he's saying is, you know, I've thought about it all, and I've thought it's better to have eyes in your head than not. It's good. That's really good. And you're a wise sage. All right. Thank you for the wisdom. And this is what he's saying. And so we will agree with this. Like, that just makes sense. Of course it's better to be smart than not smart. Of course it's better to walk with eyes in your head than not to have eyes in your head. I mean, what, what kind of silliness would, who, who in the world would ever think the opposite is true? That would certainly be foolishness. <laughs> it just, it doesn't even make sense. But then, Q brings his theology to the table. And he changes his very line of thinking in the next phrase in verse 14b. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And then I thought in my heart, so the fate of the fool will overtake me also. So he's claiming to be wise. What then do I gain? See the question again? What then do I gain by being wise. How does that help me move the ball up the court? How does that help me in my future? What do I gain by being wise? And so I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. And in days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. How many of you have ever seen uh, the movie, uh, The Titanic? Yeah? Okay. So, in that movie, it, there's a scene in which, as the Titanic, as the ship is sinking, the stringed quartet, I believe, is playing music on the uh, ship as people are sliding by them into the icy water, right? Now, imagine if you're on the Titanic in that moment, and let's say that we back the time frame up just a little bit before actually all chaos breaks loose. And let's just happen to say that you would know that this ship is going to sink in an hour. And you're being served a meal. And you're being asked, would you like, here's your choices, would you like um, a serving of red velvet cake or would you like some more broccoli? Now, I'm not even going to comment on which one I would choose or what you think you should choose or whatever. So here's the, here's the thing. If it's wise to eat more vegetables than to jam your face full of cake... Let me ask you the question, what does it matter? You will be dead in an hour. Who cares? Who cares if you make the right choice? What's the point? And this is what Q is saying. Big deal. Let's say you make a better decision than I do. Who cares? You're going to die. We're on the Titanic, people. We're going to die. And this is where his theology comes and presses down and he says, this is meaningless. And we just need to, we need to engage this for a moment because I need to ask, have you ever been so discouraged about trying to do the right thing continually? Have you ever felt like, man, 
why am I the only one at work who's making the right decisions? Man, as a parent, why do I keep trying to teach my kids and lead my kids to do the right thing when over and over and over again it's like they're not listening? Why is it that I try to lead my employees and my business this way when it seems like, man, we're just not getting the ball up the court. We're just not moving in the direction that we're supposed to go. Have you ever tried to make money decisions and try to make the best decision related to the money you have and then all of a sudden something bad happens to your vehicle and you are, you are out of money and then something worse happens related to your housing and you just are overwhelmed with life and you begin to wonder, man, why should I keep trying to make the right decisions? Man, this feels meaningless. Have you ever felt that discouraged that you're like, I just don't think it's worth the effort? Because you may not say it this way, but here's what you feel. The meaninglessness and the repetition, the cycle and the, the pressure of life, the over and over and over and over and over of life kind of wears us down over time. And this is what Q is saying. It's kind of meaningless. This is where I have to say, we have to take his teaching and then say, what if, what if, what he's saying is incomplete? What if death is not the end? And what if, for the Christian, that death was conquered by Jesus on the cross? What if you could choose broccoli or cake and the Titanic would stay floating? Because that's what happens when Christ dies on the cross and he conquers the power of death and he removes that that hopelessness that comes from you are all going to die. And all of a sudden, that changes everything because now all of a sudden, it matters what you do. It matters how you treat your spouse. It matters that you still make good decisions in the context of your business and your leadership. It still matters that you raise your kids well and that you forgive and are gracious. It matters because of the gospel. Because that is what Jesus did on the cross for us. Is he reached to us in the middle of our despair and hopelessness and said, I'm going to reach to you, conquer death, and overcome that for you. It matters generationally and it matters eternally. It matters that your kids and your grandkids will see the decisions that you make. And it matters eternally because there's eternal impact on the decisions that you make. This is where I think Hugh's teaching is incomplete. But he does give us another perspective on wisdom that's very, very helpful. I'm just going to show it to you up here to make things a little bit easier. Over into chapter 7, he begins to say this because he's really wanting to get wisdom. And I'm, I'm going to show it to you up here to make it easier. He says this, I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turn my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. Now, have you ever been there? Have you ever been where he is? I'm determined to be wise. This is beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and profound. Who can discover it? Have you ever been so unsure of what you should do so unclear what the future should be like. And he's saying, you know, I really, 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 really want to be wise. And I'm going to determine that I'm going to get this. And yet he's going to scour the world in his world, again, of death being the, the limit, and try to find something in that that makes sense for him. I'm going to figure this out. I want to know how to make wise decisions. I want to know what wisdom looks like. And then here's what he finally says, this very, very profound statement here in chapter 7, verse 29. I'm going to throw it up here on the screen again for you. This only have I found. God made mankind upright. 
but men have gone in search of many schemes. This verse is really quite incredible, if you ask me. This only have I found, after all the searching that he's done, this only have I found. God has made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. I could not agree more with him. He's right, I believe. In other words, God made you and me in his image. And in that sense, he has made us upright. But men have gone in search of many schemes. From the beginning of time, men have said, I know better than my maker. My plan is better than God's plan. I don't hear from him right now, therefore I need to do something, and I'm just going to make the best decision that I know how to make, and I'm going to make it and go. And we, like the teacher, search for wisdom, search for answers. Our search leads us to Facebook, to Google, to our friends, to our employers, our employees. And it leads us to try to find answers. And there are times when we will say, you know what, I simply don't know what to do. And here's what he was saying. God has made you upright. And here's what I think. Okay, if that's true, then if I want to know the right thing to do, maybe I should go back to my maker. Maybe wisdom originates with God. Maybe... I need to be pretty careful that in my walking and living that I'm successfully walking with the creator, with the originator of wisdom. That when it's most cloudy to me and when I would prefer not to forgive, when I would prefer not to be patient and gracious, when I would prefer that my money decisions are mine alone, when I prefer that my relationship decisions are mine alone, that wisdom says, wait a minute, wait a minute, be careful. Because men have come up with many schemes and many ideas and many persuasive arguments to make you think that you have a right to do whatever you want to do, kind of whenever you want to do it, as long as no one gets hurt. But he says, this only have I found. God is the source of all things that are upright. And when you are confused and struggling with the decisions, don't you want things to be upright and clear? Don't you want to be able to see what the future holds? And here's what Q is teaching, and I think even rightly so in his theology, that God is the source of wisdom. A couple of things to think about. Number one, if God is a source of wisdom, whoopsie, hang on, hold on. God is a source of wisdom, so ask him. In James 1.5, uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, and later on in Proverbs as well, we read that uh, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That as you're trying to figure out, what do I do, God? I don't know what to do. There are times when we, uh, just keep it really, really simple. There are times we just need to ask God what to do. That's just one thing that I, that, I, that I hope 
to drive further into your heart all the time, particularly as you're in the middle of very difficult situations, I want you to think, okay, this is simple. This is really, really simple. If God is a source of wisdom, you know, let's ask him. Let's ask him what he thinks. If God is a source of wisdom, ask him. Now, I want to offer one thing for clarity. Be leery of using God as an excuse to do what you want. Okay, let me say this on the immediate follow-up. Be leery of using God as an excuse to do what you want. There are some who do not mind asking God what to do, but will do it privately. We'll do it alone and disconnected and away from accountability with people. And I will be honest with you that there are times when it's very difficult to tell, to discern the still small voice of God from the still small voice of me. You ever been there? You ever struggle with that? Is this God speaking to you in the most private of your moments? Or is this me speaking to me of what it is that I really want to do and I just kind of hope that if I close my eyes and think about God long enough, I will feel like this is the right thing that I should do. So I want to caution you as you think about asking God for wisdom, be leery of using God as an excuse to do what you want to do anyway. And here's the way to filter that out, and that is put yourself in intentional relationships of spiritual accountability. When you allow your decision-making, you're, you're trying to decide, you know, should I date this guy or not? What should I do with my spouse when I feel distant from them for a variety of reasons? What do I do with my faith when I feel like God isn't answering me? What do I do in my career when I feel like I'm just muddling along and I don't have a future? I'm angry with somebody. They've wronged me. How do I handle that? Now here's, all those can become private emotions that we process individually. There can be room for that. But I'm telling you, they are better decisions when they are processed among spiritual relationships of accountability. In the book of uh, Proverbs, we read there that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. This is biblical. This is good. There is wisdom that resides in a multitude of counselors. And so ask God privately, that's good, but also take ideas to people who have some spiritual maturity to them and say, listen, here's what I think God is telling me to do. The people who are spiritually wise around you will be able to help discern with you. And this is a God's gift to us. So I just want you to, say, to know, be leery of processing all alone and individually on what we might like to do. Finally, I want to say this. That Jesus' resurrection changes everything. It really does. I want to encourage you not to give up leading into your life. Not to give up leading into your life knowing that God's will and design is best. There are so many, so many temptations, so many, um, we'll call it schemes for this morning, so many um, concepts that come to you and look really good, but can pull you and distract you away from God's best for you. And when I think about this, I think about the power of the cross and the gospel. And if the resurrection changes everything, then the truth of the resurrection and the truth of the cross has to filter down through all of my life. And this, if I'm honest, is very, very difficult. Because I don't want to go to the cross as much as you probably don't want to go to the cross. Because when I have to go to the cross, it means, as it did for Jesus, a death to myself, 
a death of my will over God's. It means an embracing of grace and forgiveness in my relationships with you and you with me. It means that I put to death the things that I simply want to do. It means that I realize in wisdom the smartest way to live is not living like you're the smartest person. The smartest way to live is to recognize God has wisdom beyond what I do. And I just want to appeal to you, please don't ever give that up. As you come through junior high into high school, into college and young adult age, and you begin you know, creating a family and your future and all that, I just want to appeal to you, please, in the pursuit of your life, in the, in the decisions that you're trying to make to be the smartest you can be, and I get it, to make your future better than your past, I'm all for that. Please do not give up this reality that God has made us upright. He is the source of wisdom. He is the source. And, and the cross and the gospel changes everything. Therefore, I want to submit myself to Him. Ask Him for wisdom. It's, it's simple in that sense, but difficult. Trust spiritual accountability around you. Make yourself open to people that you're willing to talk to, even about the hardest things. And this is how we gain a heart of wisdom. That we submit our will to our Heavenly Father and don't ever give up. Don't ever give up because the resurrection changes everything about everything. Our great God and Heavenly Father is the source of all wisdom. And through the cross, he gave us an incredible model of what it looks like to die to ourselves and to lead into life wanting his best. And I pray that you and I will never, ever give that up. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God that we can study and read and search out. And I thank you for the truth of the message of the cross of Jesus Christ that gives us hope beyond the grave and hope beyond death. I pray for us as we have a lot of decisions to make, all of us. Some are financial, some are spiritual, some are relational, some are emotional. Uh, that you indeed would give us wisdom as we try to follow you and know your heart, see your interest. Give us a vulnerability to open ourselves up to people around us who can provide a spiritual accountability, who in the multitude of counselors that we can find wisdom among them. Father, help us never to give up on this truth that we need to pursue you, that, that respecting, revering, honoring you is the beginning of wisdom. May we be men and women and young men and young women who are constantly pursuing you and your favor, that we will Always be following your lead, no matter where we go. Give us courage to do what we know we need to do, and we'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.